Welcome to this episode of One Book at a Time, the Manchester University Press podcast. Time to slow down, consider the issues, learn the histories, exercise your brain in the open air of considered arguments and frontline thinking, and help us change the world one book at a time. Few would disagree that Britain's railways are broken and have been for a long time. Travellers on the network face a daily timetable of late trains, cancellations and strikes. And for the privilege, they pay some of the highest fares in Europe. Our interviewee of this episode of One Book at a Time knows all about that. He's been a regular passenger on the West Coast mainline after all. But what sets him apart is more than lived experience of the nightmare that is the rail network. He's a transport academic and he's turned his detailed knowledge of what's gone wrong on the rails into a book, with some help from his fellow travellers. So if you found yourself on a train next to an expert on Britain's railways, what would you ask them? I'm Tom haynes and I'm the author of Derailed, How to Fix Britain's Broken Railways. Welcome on board Virgin Trains. We'll be travelling... So I was studying at... So I was doing a PhD in the economics of the railways and living in Manchester, so I was getting the train very often to go down to seminars and things. And... On, on the way back on a couple of occasions, people found out on delayed trains that I was uh, writing this stuff, but I'd spent all day thinking about it and speaking to people about it, and I just wanted to relax on the way home. Initially, at the start of those conversations, I, didn't, <laughs> I wasn't giving much away. When I did start get chatting, I sort of got back into it. I did realise that the stuff that I was studying as part of my PhD is, is academic research was really interesting and useful, but it wasn't necessarily the questions that passengers had that were being negatively affected by the state of the railways. I took myself back to situations that I'd been in as a passenger, stuck on a uh, an overcrowded train in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere, uh, and you look outside and all you can see is dark fields and you're waiting for the latest announcement from the train manager as to why the hell we're stuck where we are when we might expect to get home. Uh, And that's sort of how the book starts, really. Well, the fares are sky high and the trains are always late, uh, if they even arrive at all. I thought we'd invented the railways in this country. So why are the trains in such a mess? The railways go back a couple of hundred years in their history. They were obviously the pioneer railways of of the world, really. And when they were developed in this country, they preceded other forms of mass transport. And they were developed by private companies in competition with each other, which built a lot of infrastructure, competing infrastructure. So you still have the legacy today of many cities having more than one main train station whereas in places like Germany they tend to have one big central train station. During the World Wars they were temporarily nationalised because they were mostly losing money and that became a permanent situation after the Second World War. It was recognised 
to some extent that the railways weren't going to be very profitable. They started off as very profitable because they had no competition from other forms of transport. But following the Second World War, the development of the private motor car, motorways, etc., they became seen as an incredible burden on the government. And successive governments tried to reduce the subsidy paid to the railways, and they did that in various ways. In the 1950s, they tried to spend loads of money on them uh, to modernise them. But that, that didn't make them profitable. They, they lost a lot of money doing that. And then famously in the 1960s, the Dr. Beeching came along and cut significant amount of the network out and said that what remained is the profitable part but it didn't because when you you chop off the branches it starts making the trunk of the tree less viable so we've had successive governments since the second world war that have pursued a policy of attempting to minimize the amount of government responsibility for the railways in different ways but perhaps or almost definitely the maddest idea in, in all of those different projects was the privatisation of the railways in the mid-1990s. And the way that was structured, the reasons for doing it, and not only that, the, the way governments have responded to its failure ha- have led to various amounting problems that have seemed to be getting exponentially worse. A replacement bus service is in operation Seems to me like it's in a mess everywhere you look. Surely this is going to cost us a lot of money to sort out. The way passengers see it is they don't really care about the infrastructure capacity. They, they care that the trains don't run all the time. But one of the main reasons for that is insufficient infrastructure in various different ways. The defenders of privatisation will admit to a lot of the problems with it, but but point to this one statistic which they think trumps everything else, which is that passenger numbers approximately doubled since privatisation up until the Covid outbreak. But there's no reason to believe that that was a result of privatisation. The services weren't improved, the the train tickets became on average 40% more expensive in real terms. And you can see an increased demand for travel across all modes of transport in that time. So there's a question then of, you know, did the infrastructure match the increased demand for travel? When there is increased congestions on the roads, governments tend to look at trying to widen them or build new roads. That hasn't happened on the railways to the extent that's necessary. So when you have, say, a problem caused by a lack of train crew on one service, it can block the line and delay lots of other services and when they try and pack as many services as possible onto the onto one route the chances of them causing knock-on delays to lots of other services increase massively so we've got a very congested network owing to the insufficiency of infrastructure and the main reason for the insufficiency of that infrastructure is not the amount of money the government spent on the railways it's the fact that a lot of that money in a, a ghastly proportion of it An unreasonable proportion of it has gone to the pockets of shareholders and bondholders in international financial markets. So we are left with a legacy of that process before COVID of subsidy increasing to £12 billion a year. Started off in real terms, taking into account inflation, before privatisation at about £2 to £3 billion a year. So subsidy increased by five times in real terms. But the provision of services, the investment in infrastructure, etc., 
didn't increase by anywhere near as that that amount so when we're talking about what it, what sort of infrastructure we need we certainly need more we need more investment in infrastructure and staff but that investment has to come on top of what the railway already owes if you like every year uh, to various parts so we're talking about a very very expensive system now and the, the government either has to keep paying that subsidy and increase it to improve the railways or it has to bail them out or it has to start vastly reducing services which I think most people will agree wouldn't be a good idea. The next train to depart from platform 6 will be the 1733 London Northwestern Railway service to Birmingham New Street. If what the rail system needs is public money then what hope for us passengers? It's not as if there's a lot of cash to go around, is there? No, we're not going to have a better railway system without spending more money on it. I think that's, that's, that much is clear. So it becomes a question of how do we get the government to spend more money on not just the railways but everything else. So as I argue in the book, it is possible for passengers to do a lot more than they have historically as activists to put the government under pressure, to put the train companies under pressure. We've seen a lot of rail strikes by rail workers, which has been very powerful and may indeed lead to more money than the government wanted to spend on the railways before and less de-staffing, etc. But there's also been examples in the books where passengers have got together and refused to pay for fares, fare strikes. All of these things will be needed on their own. Is that going to be enough to create the sort of investment we need in public transport that the urgent need to decarbonise the economy suggests that we need and I, d- I don't think so. So it's, it's a question of how we relate the politics of public transport to the broader social politics around the cost of living crisis, the climate emergency and the sort of nascent resurgence if you like of popular protest and strikes which has come about mostly since I wrote the book which does give I think some hope that things could get better. Get on like one train run by one company. Next time I get on it, it's run by another company. The service is the same. So what's the benefit to me of having different companies run the trains? It's all the same system, isn't it? Branding, if you like, reflects uh, different periods of management of the service. Those periods of management have been by private companies in a, in a system called franchising. So when the railways were privatised in the mid-1990s, they split the operations off from the infrastructure. And that meant that there was one company that owned and operated the infrastructure and, and other companies which were to run the services and then pay the infrastructure provider for using the tracks and the stations, etc. And the whole idea behind that was the Tory government at the time were obsessed by competition. Lots of people looked at this before and said, you can't possibly have competition on the railways because it doesn't make any sense. You have, say, 10 trains a day between London and Manchester. It would be insane if one of the trains was run by one company and another train was run by another company, etc., etc. Because people want to just get the next train. They don't care what the company is. 
And then what do you do when people need to change trains? Do they have to buy another ticket or it just becomes very complicated? It's not the sort of industry where competition works in that way. So instead they said on a particular route, only one company will be the main provider of services, but the competition will be for the right to run those services. The government will run a competition. They said it was all about improving the passenger experience and companies like Virgin, with Richard Branson, they you know, they brought along champagne bottles and smashed them onto the front of trains and repainted them red and stuff. But that wasn't the fundamental reason that they did it. That goes back to the original purpose of privatisation, which was, even though they inherited very low levels of public subsidy, was to reduce them even further. So the point of privatisation is you've got, say, three companies, Company A, Company B and Company C, And the government says, which one of you will run these services for the least amount of public subsidy? And Company A wins because it says, I'm going to take £10 million a year less than the other companies. What's the economic basis for them being able to say they can do that if they don't own the infrastructure? They also don't own the trains. Where are they going to find these these, uh, savings from? The only thing they can do is that they're the direct employers of the staff. So they're essentially making a bet against other private companies that they can screw the workforce more than the other private companies. And so that's how the system went on. That system didn't reduce public subsidy at all. And that's partly because the rail unions got better organised. They had to completely reorganise following privatisation because they were used to organising around a nationalised service. But they did get better organised. And and overall, they have generally managed to maintain for most staff the same amount of pay that they were on before privatisation, even in real terms, which a lot, in fact, the vast majority of public sector workers or public service workers can't say that. Most of us have had our wages reduced in real terms, say, in the HE sector, it's 20%, I think. But the system carries on. It doesn't add any value. Say They don't own anything, so it can't. And, you know, a lot of these <laughs> innovations that they had, say Virgin had uh, at seat audio devices and stuff like that they, they don't use them anymore and it's a lot of that flashy stuff never really worked out but why is it still around is an interesting question I think I think it goes back to this idea of trying to discipline the workforce it's an outsourcing of labour discipline to the private sector on the basis that perhaps the private sector are better at disciplining labour in general than the government is and I'm not sure if that's actually true and actually, a lot of these private companies, say First and Stagecoach, etc., were very successful in driving down wages in the bus industry in the 1980s. That was why they were brought into the railway. So you do the same thing here. But they found a much tougher task in taking on the rail unions, partly because of their structural power, but partly because of their politics as well. I think. If only there was some way we could get together to fight for a better train service. It's not like us passengers can go on strike, can we? There's a distinction made in social movement studies between something called associational power and structural power. Structural power, we're talking about collective power. When I mean power, I mean the ability to get what you want out of a situation. And often out of something from someone that doesn't want to give it to you. Uh, When we talk about strikes, for example, the power relation there is when it's on the railways, it's the government doesn't want to give the railway workers more money, the railway workers try and force the government to do it. And they're 
structural power comes from their ability to stop large parts of the economy from functioning. But what I'm saying in the book is that the passengers don't have a great deal of structural power. Uh, and the reason for that is, unlike other forms of community-type action or non-trade union action, passengers confront each other as strangers. That's how my book opens, is, is talking to strangers on the train. We don't tend to live in the same place. We don't tend to associate with each other other than randomly meeting each other on the train. So we're, di- we're difficult to organise as a social group. But that doesn't mean that it's impossible or not worth trying. So a good example of a fair strike was from 2014 with a group called the South Yorkshire Freedom Riders. And it was a specific situation where the local authority was providing free train travel for older and disabled people and took it away suddenly, partly as a result of Osborne's austerity cuts. And a group of retired trade unionists mostly got together through a trades council in Barnsley and they called a meeting about it. You know, should we do something? 300 people showed up to that meeting. And at that meeting, they decided the best thing we can do is take these passes which are no longer valid and all try and get on the train together. And through that, on a number of occasions, they sort of essentially forced their way onto the train. The basic result of that was that they managed to win back free travel for disabled people in South Yorkshire and half price for for older people too. But there was an element of structural power there in the sense that they had that trade council, they all lived in the Barnsley area. So one of the things I argue in the book is that if we want to be really effective as passenger rail campaigners, we have to think really carefully about whether we need to broaden our campaigns into, for example, there's been quite a lot of campaigns about bringing buses into public control which tend to be more locally based. So I propose in the book that there needs to be a broad public transport campaign that doesn't focus just on railways and does encompass more locally based issues to borrow, if you like, some of the power from that those communities have. It's frustrating. We're doing the right thing for the planet by travelling by train. So why does it have to be so hard? I felt like I needed to say, well, what do I want the railways to be about and what should, what should they do? Because I don't think uh, successive governments have answered that question. And also I'm asking for a huge amount of money, so that has to be justified in some way. And my approach to that is to say that there are two major crises going on in our lives collectively. One is the climate emergency and one is inequality. So I try and say in the last chapter what I think railway policy should be if we're taking a just transition seriously we actually want to do it and all parts of the economy have to contribute to that including the railways one of the things that i say that may not be popular with some people is that we can't just build loads of railways as a, as a result of the uh, climate crisis we don't have time to do that unfortunately we did have time to do that maybe 10 or 15 years ago but we don't now We've left the Holocene and we're heading towards four degrees of warming within the next 80 years. Recent report said that if that happens, we're going to get another eight on top of that. So we're talking about sort of the collapse of human civilization within the next 50 to 60 years, potentially, if we don't really get to grips with it in the next 10. So building loads of high speed lines, it's going to take 30 or 40 years. You can do that if you want. But they take a huge amount of carbon uh, to build themselves. 
So you're going to have to find those carbon savings from somewhere else. And we're running out of places to find those carbon savings from. The thing about railways and energy use and the emissions that they cause and transport in general is that unlike potentially other industries, say baking or manufacturing of televisions or something, they're not making something for immediate consumption. They're allowing something else to happen. So we need to think about each industry and how the energy can be reduced as well as how we produce that energy through renewables because we're going to have to reduce energy consumption, not just produce more and more energy from renewables because that's not possible. So we have to think about why uh, people are travelling so much. It's more or less doubled in the past 20 years for passenger travel. And we have to think about why so many goods are moving so far and whether they need to be. That involves having a transport policy which aims to reduce the amount of travel that we do. And I think that can be quite popular. I think to some extent the working from home thing's been a bit of a double-edged sword. I think a lot of people benefited from it and we're Zooming all the time and all the rest of it. On the other hand, I still see people in meetings on their kitchen tables shivering and... Really, the government didn't do anything to help people do that. Labour's policy at last election was to have free broadband, for example. But could we have places to go in the community, free places provided by the state where people can go and work and get out the house? So that's one thing. We need to reduce travel demand. And we need to use the infrastructure that we've got better. So one of my proposals in the book is to get rid of first class because it's just carrying around empty space. And I've been on a couple of radio interviews where I almost heard the interviewer wince at that (laughs) sort of radical Marxist suggestion. But actually, the government itself made the same suggestion three years ago because they they don't make any money out of it. And it's a subsidy on the rich to, to have a bit more space. Another thing that we need to do is to use our roads a lot better. Around a third of urban journeys by car are less than one kilometre. That's causing a lot of uh, emissions. And we need to think about aviation seriously. So the, the government's official position on this at the moment is something called Jet Zero. And this imagines a new fuel that's going to come along soon, which is uh, net zero carbon. And that fuel doesn't exist either in development seriously or even logically, to any extent that anyone's really looked at it. And yet government policy is based on that. I argue that instead of sort of building lots more high-speed lines to take people from, say, London to Aberdeen, for example, just ban the flights. You know, It's not a case of trying to entice people from flights. It's a case of stopping the bloody flights. They are a massive, massive contributor to our crisis. I mentioned how Andrew Haynes, he's the chief executive of Network Rail, so Network Rail is the infrastructure provider on the railways, almost is really sort of the leader of the railways outside of, outside of Westminster. He was tasked to do a review about the economics of regional airports. They lose huge amounts of money. And they, they require subsidy too. And the COVID pandemic really put them into a, a bad place. He advocated in that report that airports are rescued and hundreds of millions of pounds of government money is spent on rescuing them because... It's unreasonable for people to catch the train from Scotland to England. Most reasonable people would want to fly. And I just think that's ridiculous. And I can't believe someone who's an industry leader in the railways is saying that kind of thing. Night trains as well. Flights to 
continental Europe will need to go to. I'm not sure what to do about the long haul. We might just have to ration them massively. I don't know. That's, that's a really difficult one. I'm getting further and further away from the railways here, but you have to think about all of these things. People say the railways should be brought back into public ownership. It's not like they're getting any better under privatisation. So, should they be nationalised? I was conscious in the book not just to say, all of this bad stuff has happened, so therefore let's renationalise the railways. Because if you've renationalised the railways now, that wouldn't solve most of the problems. You would still have this funding crisis. At least initially, you'd still have this problem of like different workforces doing not really coordinating. But my, my, my point about renationalisation is you, we're not going to be able to do any of the things I just mentioned with, with lots of private companies involved, simply for the fact that it's a loss-making industry. The involvement of private companies has to come alongside those companies making profit. They're not going to get involved in, unless they're almost guaranteed some profit. So you're just having to spend more money unnecessarily on the railways when what I'm asking for is a historically massive amount of money to be spent on the railway. So I don't see how we're going to do a just transition whilst also continuing to funnel taxpayers' money from ordinary people into the pockets of international transport company shareholders. This service is between Newton-Willows and From where I'm stood, I can't see the trains getting better any time soon. Have you got any reason for us passengers to feel more optimistic? It's delayed by approximately seven minutes due to train crew being delayed. Fundamentally, the system of the railways, like all other systems that we have to live with, are, are staffed and run by people like ourselves. There's tremendous power in the workforce to dictate to some extent what happens on the railways and that has become more apparent over the past few months than ever before. There's also growing opposition and discontent with the economic status quo uh, more generally and growing alarm amongst the population uh, about the threat of climate change. You know we live in an economic system that relies on our labour, that relies on us going to work and often into jobs that we don't really want to do but we feel that we have to and most of us are in the same boat so there's always the potential within capitalism I think for that uh, potential power that we have collectively to be used to effectively overthrow the political order that we live in and it wouldn't be the first time a political order has been overthrown if you look back through history and if you look back through history it's very often the case that one or two years before that happens, nobody thinks it is going to happen. You can't predict it. Will it happen? I have absolutely no idea. The response to the cost of living crisis post-COVID, which is partly to do with tightening labour markets, but also driven by collective impoverishment over inflation, energy bills, etc., has started to lead to a resurgence of the trade union movement, which hasn't really featured in British politics significantly since, since the Thatcher years, and puts a new spin on things. Where that will go, we'll, we'll have to see. But my message is, 
yeah, okay, let's be hopeful about that. It's obviously not all decided and we, we don't know what's going to happen. But if passengers want it to happen, they're going to have to do it themselves. They're going to have to get involved, one way or another, in that movement. Otherwise, we definitely are screwed. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Manchester University Press podcast, One Book at a Time. If you like what you've heard, please check out the MUP website, www.manchesteruniversitypress.uk, where you can find and order a copy of this book and many others like it. Don't forget to follow us on all the major social media platforms and subscribe to our newsletter for 30% off all of our books.